Don't worry. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm with a very old friend whom I maybe haven't seen for 20 years. We have seen each other, but only very briefly. In passing. Someone I used to work with, Professor Krishna Sen, who is now an executive dean of Peacocks. Yes, indeed. The University of Western Australia. Can you tell us about the Peacocks? Sure. I I didn't expect to be speaking about the Peacocks, (laughs) but the Peacocks were a gift to the Dean of Arts in 1967. And um, we've since somehow become responsible for them. But, you know, we need to get protection order for them. We need to have dogs on the leash for them. We have all kinds of things to do with Peacocks. So Peacock. Peacock Dean is a Being is, is, is a serious and, matter. And cleaning up the poop, I'm sure. Uh, um, uh, um, uh, yes, there is a lot of poo to clean up as Dean, but it's not Peacock poo. <laughs> so, Krishna, I'm sorry to give you that rather ridiculous question, but it is one of the things you notice every time you come here, isn't it? And perhaps not if you're here on a daily basis, but as a visitor, how spectacular a place UWA yeah. is. It's a very yeah. beautiful place. Yeah. Let me tell you a little bit more about the peacocks mm. um, because it has to do something with the architecture of this um, this building which we are sitting in this is the arts building it's about 51 years old but inside the arts building is what we call the new fortune theater which is a shakespearean stage and it is said to be an exact copy of the Fortune Theatre, which burnt down in 1500 and whatever it burnt down in. Um, But it's such a perfect copy. It's apparently the only perfect copy in the Southern Hemisphere, and Globe Theatre were here to have a look at it before they did their renovation to the Globe. So, And the Peacocks live on that stage and regularly put on a performance. (laughs) And in terms of the Peacocks, why do they not go anywhere else? What keeps them here? Is it you, Krishna? Toby, (laughs) uh, this is not a serious cultural studies question, (laughs) but the peacocks apparently have become very attached to a particular place. We've tried to get them out of the stage because we want to use it much more as a performance space, as a teaching space, Mm. and um, particularly um, with the establishment of the Centre for the History of Emotions, um, there was a desire to use that space as what the founder of that um, that uh, research centre um, called a collaboratory. So mm-hmm. it's a space where performers and researchers could come together to think about the is- issues around emotion and how performance and emotions are related and so forth. So, you know, the peacocks are a problem, although UWA regards them as one as being amongst its hundred treasures. So it's there, hundred treasures. Yeah, we have a list of hundred treasures. Are any of them human? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the peacocks are the only live things in it. <laughs> wow. So you mentioned this centre for the history of history emotions. of emotions. That sounds really interesting, and that's under your jurisdiction as executive dean, I guess. Well, in so far as anything is under the. Di- jurisdiction of deans. Um, But the Centre for the History of Emotions was funded by the Australian Research Council. The year it was funded, um, it was the, I think, the second largest grant given that year. I don't remember, but it was certainly the largest grant, competitive grant ever to Mm. be got uh, in the humanities, a total of 27 million over seven years. It was a project that was driven out of... um, 
medieval and early modern studies, which uh-huh. lived inside history and English. Um, unfortunately, their attempt to get a second lot of grants um, has not succeeded, but, you know, they've done very good work. I mean, the publications, and uh, it's not my specialist area and probably not yours either, but it's certainly of broad interest to what you might call cultural studies. Um, yeah. It's yeah. it's a serious attempt to think about um, the history of what we call emotions from a time before even the word emotions was mm. in existence. Mm. So mm. it's it's quite a it's quite a quite a fascinating topic. Now you just mentioned whatever power deans may have. What's it like being an executive dean? Oh gosh. Um, so uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about the kind of dearth of uh, coloured skins amongst uh, the senior. Um, members of the university sector um, in Australia. So as you know, there's never been a coloured vice-chancellor in this country. And I should interrupt, vice-chancellor is like rector or president or chancellor. It's the the top, the chief executive officer. Yes, the vice-chancellor is the president in American terms. Um, um, And um, so... So there's never been there've there been a few deputy vice chancellors here and there, but not not a huge number. So w- w- I hadn't thought about this self consciously, but um, the first day I arrived at UWA, uh, the head of equity and diversity came in and said to me, "Do you realise that you're the first dean of colour on this campus wow. ever in its hundred years? You know, by that time in ninety five years." So it took um, UWA 95 years uh, to appoint a non-Anglo dean. Um, and the fact that I was female and non-Anglo was kind of mm. fun, although my predecessor in this role was the first female dean in arts. Whereas you do, you kind of expect arts deans to be female somehow. But in fact, you know, all of... My predecessor was the first female Mm. dean Mm. of arts and the first female dean of law is the current dean of law so you know it's quite interesting how white and male um that sort of executive level of the university still is in australia so you know it's kind of interesting in that sense we all know the term the glass ceiling but you just introduced a new one to me a few minutes ago Yes. Bambusi. Yes, that's a term that comes from Tim Suth Pomisan, who is um, the race discrim- who was the race discrimination commissioner. I can't remember if he still is, um, but it was his term. And uh, Tim was actually speaking at a conference, closing a conference for us here at UWA um, about a year ago. And he was talking about the extent to which we now need to think about not just the glass ceiling, but also the ridiculously low number of non-Anglophone people, male and female, who get to levels that you might think of as decision-making levels of of the... government business and it's you know it's kind of much easier to do uh i'm going to get into all kinds of trouble with certain kinds of friends for saying this but it's actually a lot easier 
to do a gender count because equity we've kind of defined as equality between two mm. and it's much easier to say 50 50 49 51 and so forth when it's two the diversity thing is much harder to capture and it's interesting because my american friends tell me that in american universities the language has now sh- shifted from mm. equity to diversity whereas it hasn't in australia oh, that's interesting yes it yeah. definitely is it's all about diversity that's right. and that can include uh, disability correct uh, as well as these other factors you mentioned all those sort of intersectional questions of correct. subjectivity correct. and discrimination correct and uh, it is more complicated once you have these overlapping categories absolutely yeah. so because you can't count it quite so easily, so, easily. so uh, you know um, so so i think diversity is a very serious issue for us and one of the things i did um, which i'm very proud of but the rest of the university still hasn't followed in my footsteps um, <laughs> is um, that in all the jobs we advertise from the arts faculty we have a standard line which says capacity in another uh, in a language other than english will be an advantage and we've basically not appointed i think we've appointed one person in my seven years because this person was obviously outstanding who didn't have a substantial was only anglo no i was I, only I, i'm working in britain at the moment and i went through an, an incredible struggle ultimately successful to advertise jobs saying proficiency in another major world academic language desirable and what i meant was essential and sorry we say desirable too yeah i didn't get the essential through the system this is the interesting yeah. point isn't it yeah. and it's so difficult to persuade especially anglophone people that this is legitimate it's mm. often hard in areas like science technology medicine because they've all always had to publish in english mm. right mm. but when you come to these humanities areas mm. You know there's a massive body of knowledge out That's there right. in That's a variety right. of right. world scholarly languages mm. that and and people whose work only ever appears if it's specifically translated mm. right mm. So. particularly french yeah. uh, particularly you know or in a number of other european languages but french spanish and german quite yep. clearly and even italian yep. quite clearly are major intellectual languages i'm actually interested in your comment about um the sciences having to t- publish in english forever and ever um i don't know what the numbers are but there is quite a substantial scientific literature in german for example i would have thought and i think increasingly now in chinese you know this is not i haven't looked into the numbers but i would have thought you know people say that uh, 30% of the web is not english So you you're actually missing out on quite a lot now and I have a friend who is um professor of law um uh, in Melbourne and his line is that you know we always expect that the world will speak back to us in broken english it may not be willing to do so for much longer well this i think you're right about the web in general in scholarly terms it's certainly true that there's an expansion of journals in other languages but there is also a return to the mean in the sense of the mm. way in which lots of administrators want people to publish in english journals so i one of my jobs is in latin america i spend quite a lot of time there and because spanish is such a mm. huge world language because people in over 20 countries mm. speak it because it's got hundreds of academic journals they never worried about this now all their administrators are saying 
that this must be in English, mm-hmm. or you won't mm-hmm. get promoted, or you won't yeah. get a raise. Yeah. These people, yeah. many of them, can't yeah. speak English yeah. or read English, yeah. and it's new for them. Mm. But for their friends in the sciences and medicine, mm. well, they've always had to do that, mm. as mm. well as this mm. other thing. But, of course, mm. uh, in many ways you're right, the web is seeing the rise of, you know, Spanish is number three on the web, obviously, uh, English and, and Potunguar, you know, duke it out for the mm. first two. The big problem with the idea of the Chinese takeover of knowledge, however, is that no, very, so few people outside one country speak yeah. it. Yeah. So it's totally different from yeah. Spanish or French yeah. or English, where yeah. you know, millions of people in, in other countries yeah. speak it, yeah. speak those yeah. languages. So yeah. I, I think there's going to be a return to be Anglo-mean in, mm. in academic mm. uh, worlds, but it's not adequate for the areas that you and I are interested in at all. Um, so, just, just to go back, I'm, I'm really interested in your notion that it'll all come back to the mean. I think you're you're right. It is, but it is in China. You you find that there is a kind of double speak around this almost. So at one level, the Chinese are trying to develop their own scientific journals, and even in the humanities and social scientists uh, sciences, their own journals. On the other hand, particularly. Uh, in the you know top 100 universities mm. and stuff, they are trying to get people to publish in English so that they can go up in the ranking systems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all of our ranking systems, you know, whether it's Xiaotong or QS or whatever, is very English dependent. The whole citation system mm. is an invention. I guess it's an Anglo-American invention mm. and remains. Anglo-American. So, so yes, while we are obsessed with citations and science is very obsessed with citations and that industry is an English-speaking industry, we probably are. But, yeah, I don't know. Tell me about how you deal with this as an executive dean here. You must be in a position always having to judge people or urge people, you know, publish here, don't publish there, get cited. Is that part so, of what you have to do? Yes, with? I do have to deal with this. And actually, you know... It's quite interesting because people do need to publish in English to be promoted in the system. There's there's no two ways about mm. it. Mm. So in that, I'm very conventional, and I've had some very difficult conversations with colleagues in Chinese, um, but particular colleagues who have reasonable publication record in Chinese language in 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 Mandarin. Mm. Uh, you know. It, 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 this Chinese is complicated. You can't talk about speaking Chinese in a sense, but you know what I mean mm-hmm. in, in that in Mandarin. So, um, but not in English. And I've had to say, no, the system will not recognise mm-hmm. this. Yeah. No, I, I don't want to pry into obviously individual cases, but I think it must be very difficult for them, difficult for you in your position. Mm. I had an instance when I was in California of somebody who was Vietnamese. Mm but whose poetry was being published in Thai, which she didn't read or write. And when she submitted this for promotion purposes, the promotion committee didn't like it, mm. and mm. they wanted an assurance that this was a high-quality Thai poetry That's journal. Right. That's right. And I was in a very difficult position. Mm. She didn't really know. I didn't know. All I could do, I spoke to a Thai expert. I wrote to the editor of the journal... And in the end, I felt able to support it, but not based on any really strong capacity mm-hmm. on my part to understand. So another colleague from another university, which will not be named, um, 
was saying to me that as she was an Oxford PhD and she published on Africa extensively in French and her university, well, basically never gave her credit for that. So it's not just the Asian languages. It's partly, though, just that systems have to have standardized ways of mm. doing this. So mm. what you and I believe as individuals cannot that easily be translated yeah. into yeah. institutional practice. I find it very unfortunate because a lot of the lists that I see of what are deemed kosher journals, for example, tend to privilege the journals of professional associations yes. rather than journals of tendency, uh, which are often rather boring. <laughs> They're, they're almost all Anglo, they're almost all based in one country, uh, yeah. some are in the UK, but really it's the United States yeah. that dominates yeah. these things. Yeah. And yeah. This is an industry and yeah. it's part of that yeah. industrial relationship yeah. which we live with. Now, let me jump back if I could. I think I'm right in saying that before you took over this job, so that's five years ago? No, say? this is my seventh year. Seven years. You were at the Australian Research Council yes. yourself. What were you doing there? So I was the executive director for humanities and creative arts. And at that stage, there were six executive directors who answered to the CEO of the Australian Research Council and the CEO answered to the education minister. In those days, education science was innovation, etc., was mm. one ministry. So that's where I was. And for your other listeners, Toby, although you know what the ARC is, yeah. uh, it is, from arts and social science point of view, the main funding national funding body um, in Australia. Because as you will know, um, Australia doesn't really have much of a philanthropic research funding, particularly not in the humanities and social sciences, a little bit in the sciences, but really not. So, for, so, so in a sense, that was a wonderful opportunity to both see what was going on nationally mm. in our field, but also to try and have a little bit of an impact nationally. So it was, a, it was a great position to be in. What's it like moving from being a person giving lectures Beerocrat. and writing papers and writing books to being a, an educrat? An educrat, <laughs> themocrat, all of those things. Bamboocrat. Bamboocrat, yeah. Um, makes me feel, you know, bamboocrat sounds really like an insect, Toby. I'm not buying into that one. Oh, I thought something in a concentration camp. <laughs> oh, that yeah. too. Oh. Oh, sorry, right, let's leave okay, that one aside. Okay, let's leave, leave that yeah, one yeah. aside. We'll, um, so, it's a very, uh, I, I mean, I, for a long time, as you know, in at, at um, Murdoch, I wouldn't have taken a, and administrative, oh, I would have run from management <laughs> roles for a very long time. And I only landed in one of these research administrative type roles at Curtin University by accident. Um, I, I didn't necessarily enjoy it, but I found that I was reasonably good at it and mm. kind of got stuck. And then I went to the ARC and then I landed in this job. Um, there are two massive differences between being uh, an educrat and being actually a teaching research academic. 
One is, as a teaching and research academic, you have a calendar. You do your teaching in a certain period. You do your research in a certain period. In my case, I did my fieldwork in a certain mm. period because my research is fieldwork-dependent research. Um, and so the year has a kind of rhythm to it. Being a bureaucrat, being an educrat, um, means the year doesn't have any rhythm at all. So it's a bit like um, living in a place which has no season change. Mm. So you're mm. always in this kind of tepid, sweaty kind of atmosphere. <laughs> so that, that's it. That's it. Canberra as Mumbai or Los Angeles. You know, it just doesn't. <laughs> yeah, the weather doesn't change. So Canberra and and WA. So despite my beautiful surroundings. Um, my the, the 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 pressure cooker atmosphere of the job yeah. never changes. So you just wow. on the so that's a problem. I mean, that's a real shift, yeah. you know, from yeah. being yeah. a teaching and research academic because that's what I was. Didn't just do research; I did teaching as well. And and that's that's one change. The other thing is, and this is something I learned from uh, previous bosses and the do's and don'ts of when you take on um, roles such as an executive dean's role um, is that really anything you achieve, you achieve Mm. because lots of other people have done the job. Mm. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so anything that is successful gets distributed um, anything that goes wrong, you have to take responsibility <laughs> for. Yeah. So when you're celebrating success, you are always celebrating the success mm. of others. Yeah. And this is a good strategy. I do it quite deliberately yeah. Yeah. because I've seen other leaders not do it and it's not a, it's not a good sign. But it also means that you then don't have a clear measure of your own success because you're always passing that on to a group of other people, whereas you have a very clear sense of what you didn't get right. So those are the kind of problem things. On the other hand, you know, I think if academics are going to complain about systems, they have to be there, get in and do these jobs. Mm. Otherwise, you're going to get a system where... You know, mid-range company CEOs become vice chancellors, yeah. um, and so so I think the jobs are important and essential jobs, but it is a different kind of mindset. I didn't, I wouldn't want a non-academic to be a dean, even though the job is not an academic job. Mm, mm. That's an interesting point. It's an extension of faculty governance, autonomy, the relative democracy. Correct. Of these places. That's right. Yeah, That's in. right. Now, as, as you're speaking, Krishna, I'm looking over your shoulder and I'm seeing Tagore and New Asian now. Yes. You're still keeping up. Um, Tagore isn't keeping up. I'm, I'm a Bengali uh, by birth and nobody grows up Bengali and literate without a little bit of obsession about Tagore. And somebody dropped off those kind of translations and stuff on my table and it's been sitting there. I've been browsing. (laughs) I've been browsing rather than reading them. Um, So when I go home, and I have to tell you the story, I I have been going home a little bit this year um, uh, because my mother has been ill. She has... um, dementia and I've been trying 
to go back and find in her collection of the complete works of Tagore. Everybody has it. Don't look surprised. There, you cannot be an educated Bengali without having the complete works, which takes up, I don't know, a couple of shelves. Yeah. Um, uh, I've been trying to go back and remember the poems she knew by heart mm. and to get her to re-engage, oh, uh, re-engage with those because it's it's unfortunate but my younger siblings don't know that part of her interest I'm, as the eldest child I'm the only one who does so I've gone back to Tagore a little bit so I was bra- I pulled them out just to just to browse them after I got back do you get any chance to do Indonesian work anymore no I knew you were going to ask me this embarrassing question but the truth is the last thing I published was in 2000 and Twelve, mm-hmm. um, and other than little things in the conversation, I have published nothing. And even that 2012 piece of work was actually a throwback to my old film work. The last piece of new work I did is now probably, you know, getting on to seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's been a long time since I've done any real new work. As you know, I mean, one of the problems of not having a rhythm to your year is not being able to go and do field work yeah and um in 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 my kind of discipline we haven't really worked out how to do work together collectively in such a way that the senior researcher does not have to do his or her own field work i I would never be able to write anything or conceptualize anything on the basis of somebody else's field work and there is something else about the area in on which I work, which is more like the sciences in some ways than like uh, than like the humanities. Mm-hmm. I mean, for a historian, and my historian friends may dispute this, you can take leave of absence from your discipline, which was the medieval text, I don't know, pre-Renaissance text or whatever, and still come back after five or six years, go back to those documents, read up on what's been written in the last five years, get back into a discipline. In my case, both my discipline and the area on which I work has been dramatically transformed. So the Indonesia, which I knew very well, was Suharto's Indonesia. Yeah. As you will know, anybody doing Indonesian studies in my generation put all of their attention into how do I critically, basically, how do I bring this bloody government down? Oh, you know. Right. So, so having done that, the new Indonesia, which I engaged with only for its first five to yep. ten years, and which has now again transformed itself in the last five or six years when I've been out of touch, yep. you know, how it's how the new Indonesian democracy is shaping up. This is quite different from what I knew of the Indonesia I looked at, you know, last time in around 2005. It's a quite different beast. That's one. So it'll be very difficult Mm -hmm. for me to go back and really do something interesting about contemporary Indonesia. And my work was always contemporary. I was always writing about, you know, today's films or today's media and that media itself has changed i mean i did my phd on film my first book was on film the whole technology of filmmaking has changed how film is distributed 
has changed. The whole social, whole social media has taken over Indonesia in the last five to ten years, which I haven't been able to live mm. inside. And, you know, um, I'm sure you'll have some empathy with this. When you work on contemporary popular media, you kind of live inside it to mm, work it. Mm, and I mm, haven't lived inside, inside it at all. And I yeah. will no longer be able... As a, I'm now a foreigner yeah. to that discipline base. and So I'm not even sure how I will go back how into my... How I would re-enter. How I would re-enter. So I'm know, more like a scientist whose yeah, field has completely yeah. changed. I knew this guy very quickly... At um, he was extraordinary. He got tenure at a major US research one school at 28. At 29, was made chair of the department. At 34, dean. Uh, he was a psychologist. And he became deputy vice, or the equivalent of deputy vice chancellor at vice about 45. Yeah. But never made the next jump. It never quite happened for him. So, at 60, he decided, oh, well, I'll go back and be a psychologist having not been one, really, for 26 years. Well, you can imagine the story. He goes back, he can't understand the literature, he's frightened of the classroom, it's all too foreign. A wonderful, wonderful, brilliant man, immensely supportive of me, and he told me all of this and mm. just said, look, you know, I made a decision, it worked out in some ways, not in others, these things just fell to me, but I don't understand my area anymore. Mm. It was very striking. I so think. when I when I go yeah. to America, yeah. you must introduce me to him because clearly I have something to learn from this person. <laughs> but could we? Because we've got about um, ten minutes left. Sure. I know you've got another meeting. I wondered if we could go back, 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 as they say in baseball, and talk about those early days. Your first book on Indonesia, mm -hmm. and take us through some of that work because uh -huh. that's important to know. It yeah. may be that it isn't explaining everything today, mm. but Sohato and what he stood for and the media environment surrounding mm. him mm. and infiltrated mm. by him mm. remains very important mm. in world history. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and very unrecognized in some ways. Um, so my book, when it came out in 1994, Four, yeah. thank you, Toby. <laughs> Your personal chronicler. <laughs> uh, 1994 was only the second book in English language. Oh. Um, on on that subject, Carl Heider. Carl Heider was the yeah. previous one, yeah. um, and my PhD was the first PhD in English. And about the same time that I was writing my PhD, there was a French PhD being written. So the two of us were writing almost um, in tandem. I actually don't know what happened to that piece of work. Oh. Never was published, though. Um, so that didn't happen. So it's remained. Uh, a pretty much this kind of little specialized area. But interestingly, there are resonances of that still. So the conversation um, a couple of weeks ago... Can you explain what the conversation is? Oh, sorry. Yeah. The conversation is, well, I guess it's an online newspaper, but it's a paper that depends very heavily on academics. And it's based, um, it's got a base... In Australia, in and Britain, and in the US. Yeah. Oh, has it got a base in the US? In you. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So they have recently appointed... They're, they're trying to develop a base in India and in Indonesia because they've appointed specific editors. So, sorry, but got very distracted. Yeah. So they came to me as part of their coverage of 
the 50 years of 1965. 1965, for your listeners, is the year that Suharto comes to power, um, uh, and very conservatively, half a million people are killed. Uh, a whole kind of cultural heritage is destroyed. So everything that the left did gets burnt and 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 a lot of them get killed and a lot of them get put in prison for the next decade. So you some of your listeners might know the name of Pramudia Anantator, Indonesia's most famous novelist. Pramudia was in prison for well over a decade. But con- the conversation came back to me to say tell us what happened to the film heritage. Because of course films were more lost than anything else. This is celluloid film. Mm. Nothing remains. Um, of the films the, that we might call the left-wing films of Indonesia made between 1955 and 1965, approximately one and a half films remain. Great. So I had a chance to go back and think in 800 words <laughs> what I might say about yeah. the loss of that film culture. So to that extent, that loss is permanent. Mm-hmm. And out of that loss, uh, out of that article, a very interesting thing happened. My favorite lefty director, of whose films I've only seen one because the only one that remains, um, his daughter contacted me oh. to say, read this, you know, tell me more, tell me more about my father. Oh. Uh, so, you know, I've made this, it's, 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 yes, the loss is a living heritage, mm. and they are trying to re, you know, collect some of his um, film writings and the scripts and get something in together. There are plans to take his scripts and make those films as contemporary oh, Indonesian films, and you know, so so yes, there is. Um, something that remains. The the last this was the so the film work is the earliest work that yeah. I did. The last piece of work that I did was David and me together. This is David and Hill. David Hill, sorry, uh, David Hill and May, and um, we looked at the early history of the internet. Um, but of course, that early history of the internet and the politicization of the internet it was extremely political much more of the Indonesian internet initially was politicized than you would find if you did parallels in America because the internet provided a space for for discursivity which was not available through the other types of media around the time of you know, 1998, 97, 98, through to the early stages of the transition to to democracy. Um, And so there are resonances of that there still. Mm. So there is bits of my work that I can reconnect with the contemporary. But, you know. Where would we find the material you produced with David? Oh, there's a Routledge book, which costs Uh so much, nobody can buy it. But (laughs) but I think that is now available as a as a Kindle book or something like that. So most of this is now. And that one's called That one's called The Internet and the Indonesian Democracy or something like that, Toby. Um, so oh here we are. The the Internet and Indonesia's New Democracy. The Internet and Indonesia's New Democracy. And that's with Routledge. And your first book from '94, that's is, that's with Z Books. Yes, that was Z. Does Z even exist? It does. Oh, okay. Actually, it's a. It really was called impressive. Framing the New Order. Framing Indo- the New Order. 
Indonesian cinema framing the new order. Yeah. And it was meant to be all... All puns were intended in terms <laughs> of framing. Now, his yeah. question I, I always like to ask Indonesianists. In, I guess, was it 98 that Soharto yes. fell? Yes, yes. I was living in New York, and the New York Times did what you would expect. It went to Clifford Goertz. Yes. A very nice, jolly old man, yes. I thought, when I met him, and said, what does this mean? And he said, oh, nothing... Uh, because of He's course, an anthropologist. Because it's all about uh, cockfights in yes. Bali yes. and clay and deep culture yes. and there's a profound connection, blah, blah, blah. And I read this yeah, thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're out of your fucking mind, yeah, but I don't know. Mind, yeah. So yep. when I speak to people like Dick Robeson or Vedi Hadis, both of whom, like you, work on Indonesia, who've been in this podcast, uh, they draw a distinction between, I think this would be right, what they see as culturalists versus, you know, real political economists doing real work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Goethe seems to be an example of that culturalist position. Yeah. Right? Yes. Could you comment on that? Yes. And, could you, and in 98, what did you think was happening? Okay. So, first of all, I think the culturalist versus political scientist is not nearly as good uh, a distinction as Alec McCall, who we both know. Another makes, podcast victim. Another podcast victim. So... Alex says there are lumpers and there are splitters. So I think that's a vastly better way of thinking about it. And in terms of lumpers and splitters, I actually think Robeson and Hadis are a little bit more on the lumper side than I am, even though I would say I'm more of a culturalist Mm. than they are. And in that sense, I'm Mm. closer to the geared sense. So what happened in 98 Uh, from my point of view, is very dramatic. It's very dramatic because the changes were already in place. 98 was going to happen one way or another. So David Hill and I published a book in... Well, it came out in 2000. Are you sure? Your memory's not so good at your own CV. No, it's not, actually. It's not, actually. I think it was 2000. I think it came out in 2000. Indonesian Culture and Society um, came out in 2000. We did not have to rewrite anything except the last chapter because, in fact, if you were observing the media, you knew that this regime was going to collapse, Hmm. if for nothing else, because censorship of the media was a central part of how the Suhartos stayed in control. If, right. you're, if, this, if the media is so large that even a very large bureaucracy cannot actually control it, mm. that regime could not have survived. Mm. It was going to fall. All the mm. changes were already in mm. place. Mm. So the, the rise of the, the huge middle class, the kind of you know, urban, Western-educated middle class who were listening to radio and television and, and, and connected to the internet, when it, were not, it was not possible to control. But it was also not possible to control the enormous ambitions of the rising capitalists. Now, capitalism, of course, is something that mm-hmm. uh, Robeson has written about um, uh, very definitively. And the, the, there was huge ambition amongst not just the super-rich, but even amongst the next layer, mm. to, to, to relate to the media, to own the media in a different way. Different way. So from my point of view, 
So how it was going to fall, yeah. whether he was going to fall in 98 or 99 or 97. Yeah, but, but the changes so, was already in, were already in place. So everything had already changed in the 90s. The Asian economic crisis, so-called yes. 97, relevant? Absolutely relevant. Um, so Gunawan Muhammad, who is one of Indonesia's best-known poets, Gunawan, I remember, I don't remember whether it was in public or just in a private conversation, Gunawan saying that ultimately it was the greenback. It was how expensive the American dollar was uh, in the context of Indonesia. You know, it's, yeah. it's always the greenback, he said. So, so, so that was the kind of straw that broke the camel's yeah. back. Yeah. But the camel's back was yeah. already under pressure in a huge way. It's interesting, isn't it, when I suppose you think of the Philippines and the Soviet Union as places where elites change their mind because things just aren't working for them the way they would like. In Indonesia's case, it's it's partly that, no doubt, but it's also this emergent, massive middle class. And I suppose we, this is the issue for the Chinese Communist Party, presumably, that eventually yep. some of these middle yep. class people mm. just decide, really, I don't just want to buy nice clothes and travel to Europe. But, you know, that was the issue. It was a bit of a... A bit of... The, the, that last draw thing did have something to do with buying nice clothes and going uh -huh. to Europe. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in a sense, there was this kind of, oh, we have, uh, we all want democracy and it's happening slowly. As long as the Sahara regime kept delivering on the economic growth, they could just keep it going. Yeah. So, so it was the last straw thing was that economic downturn. That you can't so, buy the next pair of shoes or car or whatever. That's right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, that yeah. it was no longer... The, the 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 capitalists wanting to own particular bits of media not being able to, or mm. particular businesses not being able to do it without paying huge bribes it was more a kind of another range of ambitions that mm. were suddenly thwarted yeah, when the economic crisis came which isn't close to happening in china at the moment which isn't nearly and i did a podcast with terence lee yesterday oh, yes, actually yes, yes. On Singapore, yes, and Terence was talking about his, I think, disappointment really at the recent elections, but also indicating that in the lonely hour of the last instance, people just decided, fifty years of economic growth, <laughs> we can buy what we want. That's right. But Singapore, I mean, I don't know what Terence said, but Singapore is doing something kind of interesting by trying to loosen the popular culture part of. Um, of the control. So, you know, fantastic orchestras, bands, theatre, as long as you... So it's mm. trying to make that distinction, I think, between giving plenty of cultural autonomy. Um, and I guess uh, the Suharto state, the New Order state, mm. never understood that part of the thing so they not only kept a political control they also kept an aesthetic and ethical control and that aesthetic and ethical control was becoming almost impossible to maintain so Devin and I went in to do uh, uh, to talk to some people in the bureaucracy in Jogja whose job it was to monitor what was being broadcast on radio and television there were seven people in that 
team. And that, had been, that team had been set up when there were only four or five radio stations in Georgia. We were going in at a time when they didn't know how many radio stations there were in Georgia <laughs> because they couldn't control the licenses yeah. anymore. Yeah. Internet radio had yeah. come in. Yeah, you know, so different so, world. Yeah, Krishna, different world. Sen, I want to thank you very much for doing this, and I've got news for you. Yes. <laughs> What's your news? <laughs> it's this. Given your bravura performance, as it were, over the last 20 minutes especially, and I say that not in shutter quotes in an entirely positive sense, you would walk easily back into researching this stuff. Oh, thank you, Toby. Not a question. And what I want to do is, next time you're available, do more of the podcast, maybe with David if he's agreeable. Yeah, the three yeah. of us could sit down and talk some more about these fascinating issues. Thank you, Toby. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for your reassurance. <laughs>